Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It is a vast moment, both in a domestic and foreign view, that the Senate should come to a right decision. The public mind is already sore and jealous of that body, and particularly so of the insidious and mischievous policy of the British Treaty. It is strongly averse also to war, and would feel abhorrence of an unjust or unnecessary war with any nation. However difficult our situation has been made, justice and prudence will, it is hoped, steer us through it peacefully. In some respects, the task is facilitated at the present moment. France has sufficiently manifested her friendly disposition, and what is more, seems to be duly impressed with the interest she has in being at peace with us. Great Britain, however, intoxicated with her maritime ascendancy, is more dependent every day on our commerce for her resources, must for a considerable length of time look in a great degree to this country, for bread for herself, and absolutely for all the necessaries for her islands. The prospect of a northern confederacy of neutrals cannot fail, in several views, to inspire caution and management towards the U.S., especially as in the event of war or interruption of commerce with the Baltic. The essential article of naval stores can be sought here only. Beside these cogent motives to peace and moderation, her subjects will not fail to remind her of the great pecuniary pledge they have made in this country and which under any interruption of peace or commerce with it must fall under great embarrassments, if nothing worse. The Jefferson administration inherited a state of foreign affairs much more peaceable than it had been in nearly a decade. As James Madison noted in a letter to Jefferson a couple of months prior to the 1801 inauguration, in which he analyzed the situation abroad. Still, unbeknownst to the new president and soon-to-be Secretary of State, there were developments in Europe, the Mediterranean, and the Caribbean that might before long interrupt the peaceful respite. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. As my fellow podcasters know, this is a labor of love that I don't think any of us could do without the support of our family and friends. Honestly, this podcast wouldn't be here for you to listen to without Alex. He was the one who gave me the idea and the encouragement to go out on that podcasting limb. No matter what you do, be it providing vocals, editing assistance, research help, guidance, encouragement, time, or anything else, to all those out there who support your local podcaster, thank you. Around the turn of the century, change was in the air in various nations. We've already discussed one of those in our previous series. When Jefferson assumed office, Napoleon Bonaparte had been first consul of France for over a year. As discussed in episodes 2.22 and 2.24, he had spent that time securing a peace convention with the United States, forcing the Habsburg monarchy into a treaty to bring them out of the Second Coalition, and cementing his hold on power domestically. 
For those of us who have read ahead, it's difficult to imagine Napoleon being on shaky ground. But just after celebrating the first anniversary of the coup of 18 Brumaire, the first consul was very nearly assassinated by an explosive device positioned on the route that he typically took to the opera. Having been witness to the numerous failed revolutionary administrations of the 1790s, Napoleon had acted quickly to set up an apparatus that would support his government, and this apparatus kicked into high gear to quell threats to the consulate. The regime of the consulate by its very design, and as solidified in the Constitution of the Year 8 shortly thereafter, reorganized the government into three quote-unquote representative bodies that in fact had little to no authority to challenge the consulate. This left Napoleon in a position to reorganize the ministries and staff them as he saw fit. We've already talked about our old friend Talleyrand being brought back for another stand as foreign minister, so we'll skip over him. More important to ensuring domestic subjugation was his choice of retaining Joseph Fouché to head the police ministry. Fouché had earned an infamous reputation as a proconsul during the Reign of Terror when he had signed off on, quote, the destruction of 1,600 residences in Lyon and for the execution of 1,905 citizens, all in the name of the newly proclaimed First Republic. After being chosen as Minister of Police under the Directory Government, Fouché had been brought into the conspiracy to overthrow that government by Napoleon himself after initiating a meeting upon the general's return to Paris. Under the consulate government, Fouché was given a free hand to reorganize his ministry. While taking steps to rehabilitate his reputation, Fouché also set about expanding the police to have a presence in every department in France, which would report back on any rumblings of discontent and ensure a centralized system. Only Paris was exempted from Fouché's authority, as it was granted its own police prefecture, headed by Louis Dubois. As will likely come as little surprise, the Paris prefect and the police minister soon became rivals. But, by the nature of his ministry, it was Fouché who had the wider reach. Intelligence gathered from around the country would routinely be filtered up to Minister Fouché, who would then work with his staff to consolidate it into a secret newspaper, the Bulletin de la Police. As described by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, Early each morning, only two copies were printed, covering from between 15 to 20 pages. One copy was kept under lock and key in Fouché's office. The other was tied in a green ribbon and dispatched to the Secretary of State at the Tuileries Palace. The Secretary then personally handed the Daily Bulletin to Napoleon. Now, before you think I'm going down a French rabbit hole here, dear listener, I give these details in order to give you a sense of the consolidation of power occurring in France, especially considering that the ratification of the Convention of Mortfontaine, otherwise known as the key to ensuring that the U.S. and France didn't end up at war, was currently up in the air. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But wait, you say, didn't we learn in episode 2.24 that the Senate had ratified the convention in February 1801? You are correct in that, but that wasn't the whole story. This was one of those details that was better to wait to discuss in this series, as it would be the Jefferson administration that would have to deal with the aftermath. What was passed by the Senate on February 3, 1801 was not the convention as it had been negotiated, 
but rather an amended version, which removes some language about future negotiation over the previous treaties and indemnity claims, and set a duration of eight years for the convention to stay in effect. These modifications would require a new mission to discuss the amended version with Napoleon in order to get his approval of the changes before ratifications could be exchanged. Thus, the incoming Jefferson administration had to decide on someone to be their envoy to Paris. Since two of the three commissioners who negotiated the convention were still in Europe, Levi Lincoln, in his role as acting Secretary of State, drafted instructions to both William Vance Murray and Oliver Ellsworth, urging them to return to Paris to finalize the agreement, and sent the instructions to Europe in the care of Representative John Dawson, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Dawson arrived in Paris on May 15th to find that neither envoy was there, so he wrote to Murray, who had returned to his post as U.S. Minister to the Batavian Republic in The Hague. Initially, Murray resisted Dawson's request for him to return to Paris, but when he received the official instructions from Lincoln, he began to make plans for a return trip south, despite not being happy about the assignment. Lincoln had not provided any justification for the alterations to the agreement in his letter, so Murray had no argument to make should the French object. Furthermore, though he had been given leeway to reinsert the article about later negotiations, Lincoln had given explicit instructions to not budge on the eight-year duration. Despite his concerns, on May 22nd, Murray, his wife, and his wife's chambermaid set off in a coach to Paris. It should be noted that this latest round of Franco-American diplomacy was taking place around the same time as the destruction of the Danish fleet by the British at the Battle of Copenhagen. The Danish had been proponents of a quote-unquote armed neutrality policy, which had facilitated trade with belligerent nations, including France. The French had also lost an ally in Russian Tsar Pavel Petrovich, anglicized as Paul I. Pavel had passed away around the end of March, and his son, Alexander Pavlovich, had assumed the throne. However, it was still too early to determine whether Alexander would continue his father's close relations with France or would turn towards more of a pro-British policy. While circumstances tended to favor Murray being able to reach a peaceful resolution at a time that the French were in need of allies, an amiable compromise was in no way, shape, or form assured as the American diplomat made his way back to Paris. Upon his arrival at the French capital and his initial outreach to the consulate government, Murray found himself back playing the familiar Talleyrand evade and delay game. He met with First Consul Bonaparte on June 6th and noted that the French leader, quote, did not appear much pleased with the provisional ratification, though Napoleon stated that he didn't anticipate, quote, any insurmountable difficulties. Murray, however, would find that the negotiations with the French commissioners in mid-June presented formidable challenges. First, as anticipated, the French questioned the motivations of the U.S. Senate for removing the language about future negotiations, and Murray had no answer to give. He admitted that he had no information to provide to his counterparts in terms of reasoning behind the change. Without a reason supplied, the French commissioners urged Napoleon that, should he decide to ratify the treaty, he include a stipulation that the revocation of that language by the Senate signal, quote, a renunciation by the United States of all indemnity, as well as a renunciation by France of old treaties. The French returned to the table on June 25th with the proposal of a conditional ratification if, quote, Murray would sign a protocol abandoning both indemnities and old treaties. It was at this proposal that Murray played the one card Lincoln had given him. He offered to return the language of the article about future negotiations the Senate had removed 
to the agreement. However, as the French had found how this article being removed could work to their advantage, they demurred at the suggestion. The back and forth continued on for a few more days until finally on July 5th, Murray figured out a solution to the deadlock. He would agree, as the French requested, to sign a document with the French conditions included, but he would only sign as witnessing that the government of France was making the requested stipulations, not that he, as a diplomat of the United States, was agreeing to the conditions. It took the majority of the month, but the French finally agreed, and on July 31st, Murray and the French commissioners, quote, signed an agreement in which there was no reference to qualification or condition. Then, in Murray's presence, the French commissioners signed a separate declaratory statement, written only in French and signed by them alone, in which they announced their condition that the removal of the language on future negotiations meant that the issue of indemnities and the revival of the previous treaties were now off the table. If you'll indulge me for a moment, dear listener, Let's fast forward a little bit so that we can wrap up the narrative of the convention of Mort Fontaine and William Vance Murray before we move on. With the convention, after receiving word of the agreement that Murray had reached, Jefferson had to wait until the next session of Congress in December 1801 before he put it before the Senate. Ultimately, though there were grumblings from some senators, including Governor Morris, who had previously served back in the Washington administration as U.S. Minister to France, the Senate agreed to let the matter rest and approve the French conditions. Thus, normal relations were restored between the U.S. and France. As for Murray, on July 26th, he had received official notification that he was being recalled from his post as U.S. Minister to the Batavian Republic. Though this had been expected, as Murray had been a staunch defender of the Jay Treaty while serving in Congress, Considering that he was still at work finalizing an agreement with France on behalf of Jefferson and his administration, Murray took this recall as an affront. The Murrays left Paris in mid-August to make arrangements for their departure and finalize any remaining business in The Hague. On September 16th, their ship departed, bound across the Atlantic, and they arrived in Alexandria in the District of Columbia on December 2nd. As noted by Murray's biographer Peter Hill, his arrival, quote, evoked little curiosity from official Washington. When no one came to question him, he wrote Adams with some irony that, since he had little to report, he was content to keep what little he had to himself. Murray was not completely unnoticed, however, as he would dine with both the President and the Secretary of State before returning to his home on the eastern shore of Maryland, where he sought to revive his long-neglected law practice. Unfortunately, for someone who gave so much to public service, the public seems to have made little note of his death on December 11, 1803. Indeed, Murray's biographer Hill was not able to find details on the cause of death, his exact location where he died, or where he was buried. From existing primary sources, the 43-year-old former congressman and diplomat appears to have only been memorialized by his friend and colleague John Quincy Adams, quote, who published a lengthy tribute to his friend in the Boston portfolio. 1801 was a year of departures in many corners of Europe, as the year would also bear witness to the resignation of long-standing Prime Minister of Great Britain, William Pitt the Younger. Up until now, from the perspective of U.S. presidential history, there hasn't been much to comment on in terms of British politics for the simple fact that, for the entirety of the time we've covered, it had been relatively stable. William Pitt had been Prime Minister since 1783. In that time, he had dealt with the establishment of relations with the newly independent United States, 
the illness of King George III, which precipitated a political crisis, the long-standing war with France, a financial crisis, and an uprising in Ireland. Most recently, he had overseen a fundamental reorganization of the kingdom. The Acts for the Union of Great Britain and Ireland had been passed in 1800 and went into effect on January 1, 1801. Previously, though the kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland had been joined in a personal union with George III acting as the monarch of both, they had maintained separate parliaments and governmental structures. The Acts of Union, however, created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and merged the two parliaments into one. It is beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss all the ramifications of the Acts of Union, but just know this is where what we now know of as the United Kingdom came into existence. Likewise, I don't want to get too much into the weeds in discussing the transition of power in Britain, but there are some key points to note. First, though the exact circumstances around his resignation are not completely clear, the pretext for Pitt's resignation related to the Act of Union and a debate over whether to allow Irish Roman Catholics to sit in Parliament. Animosity against Catholics had been a prevalent sentiment in England for quite some time and had been a key part of the major power struggle in the late 17th century, dubbed the Glorious Revolution. During that period, the Test Act had been passed, which banned Catholics from holding office. The reality of the situation as the Act of Union was going into effect was that the majority of Ireland was Catholic, and if the Test Act was not repealed or an exemption granted for the Emerald Isle, Ireland would be represented in the United Parliament by a minority of the population, something that Pitt and others saw would result in increased unrest. However, King George III was arrayed against the idea of allowing Catholic MPs, as his family's right to rule derived from the fact that they had been the closest Protestant heirs. The king, citing his position as the head of the Anglican Church, argued that it would be a violation of his coronation oath to give his assent such a bill, and that it would cause, quote, a total change in the principles of government. With this, the king and the prime minister in their relations were drifting further apart. They had previously differed over plans for prosecuting the war against the French, with the king opposed to a plan related to British actions against the French in Egypt. But with the Irish question finding them in opposing camps, it seemed as if the prime minister had lost the king's confidence as George was unmovable on the issue. This impasse could, in the norms of the time, be thus used as a justification for respectfully leaving office. As noted by Pitt biographer John Ehrman, quote, if he, Pitt, was looking for a pretext to go, that would undoubtedly be from his own choice. At this point, Pitt had already admitted to an associate that, quote, other business and want of health had kept him from corresponding as he had previously with the king. And it's noted that he had suffered a downturn of health in the midst of the pressures of office towards the end of 1800. Thus, on February 3rd, 1801, he invited the Speaker of the House of Commons, Henry Addington, to dine with him. Though the details are unknown, at the end of the meeting, a letter was sent to Buckingham Palace, quote, containing Pitt's immediate resignation. Though the choice would seem out of the blue, as there were numerous members of Pitt's cabinet who had been positioned to succeed him, Addington would be Pitt's recommended successor, and, as noted by Ehrman, there were logical reasons for the choice. Quote, he, Addington, was not cumbered like some of the more likely choices with an awkward record on Irish Catholic relief. He was not implicated in the cabinet's damaging quarrels over strategy and the question of peace. And, 
a salvaging point for a politician, he had been chosen as much by his predecessor as by the king. Addington had been opposed to the plan to allow Irish Catholics to sit in Parliament, so he still found himself in George's favor. The succession was delayed by a bout of ill health experienced by King George in mid to late February, which got to the point that, on the 22nd, quote, the king was delirious, and while his condition thereafter fluctuated bafflingly, he was hidden from view with distressing reports over the rest of the month. By March 2nd, it seemed like the king was not long for this world, and Pitt likely had second thoughts about his plans to resign from office. Luckily for both, George quickly recovered soon thereafter, allowing the PM to hand over the reins, and on March 15th, as noted by Ehrman, quote, Pitt became a free man for the second time in his career. I share all of this as the new Addington ministry would soon seek a turning point in the long-standing war with France, which would, in turn, have ramifications for the United States. Putting that on the back burner, let's start to make our way back across the Atlantic with a couple of stops along the way. First, let's take a moment to stop in Madrid. As we've discussed in prior episodes, though Spanish influence on the world stage was waning, they were still a key power in North America. Even that, though, was on the decline, though the U.S. government did not know it yet. As discussed in episode 2.24, France and Spain had concluded a secret treaty, the Third Treaty of San Ildefonso, in October 1800, in which Spain had agreed to cede control of the Louisiana Territory to France. This was part of a much larger positioning scheme in the European political realm. Spain had suffered economic setbacks in the late 1790s that had contributed to political instability. The Third Treaty of San Ildefonso, meanwhile, had been negotiated under pressure from Spanish King Carlos IV and Queen Maria Luisa, both of whom had been born and raised on the Italian peninsula and were very interested in having a new principality established in Tuscany for their daughter and son-in-law. Royal interests diverged from national interests with this treaty, but the first ministerhood reluctantly negotiated it. Mariano Luis Aquico, due to his offending the Catholic Church, which was a major influence in Spanish politics, and his damaging relations with France, was ousted shortly after the conclusion of the treaty. Former First Minister Manuel de Godoy, the Prince of Peace, had led the Spanish government for the majority of the 1790s before his ouster in 1798, and had maneuvered himself back in the ascendancy by the end of 1800. Rather than taking the reins of power directly, however, Godoy established a proxy, his cousin by marriage, Pedro Cevalos, as the new first minister. It was an open secret that Godoy was the one really in control, with Cevalos often forwarding along state correspondence to Godoy to get his marching orders on how to proceed. Despite his consolidation of power, the weakened state of Spain meant that Godoy and the king, Carlos Cuatro, had to take the interest of France and First Consul Napoleon under strong consideration. Though Carlos had resisted, Napoleon demanded that Spain declare war against Portugal, which had continued to defy France and kept its ports open to trade with Britain. On March 31, 1801, Spain acceded to Napoleon's demands and declared war. Godoy became field commander of Spanish forces, and after the Spanish took control of a couple of key Portuguese border fortresses, the government in Lisbon sued for peace. Though it was a quick victory for Spain, the victory was in fact one for Napoleon, as it pointed to his growing impact and influence over European affairs beyond the borders of France. Indeed, Napoleon's government would conclude their own treaty with the Portuguese on June 6th, which would cede to France a sizable part of Portuguese territory in South America 
and would also quell the British utilization of Portuguese ports, which had been strategically advantageous for the British Navy for so long. Ambitious as always, though, the acquisition of Louisiana and the lands in South America pointed to the fact that Napoleon's plans didn't end at the shores of the Atlantic. When we last checked in on Saint-Domingue in episode 2.21, as Napoleon was doing in France, so too was Toussaint Louverture consolidating his hold on power on the island of Hispaniola. He had defeated his rival André Rigaud, launched a successful expedition to take control of the previously Spanish-held half of Hispaniola, Santo Domingo, and had been recognized by Napoleon as General-in-Chief of the Army in Saint-Domingue. With all of those goals accomplished, it was time to start implementing his vision. Though what we now know of as the Haitian Revolution was considered radical as it had abolished slavery in Saint-Domingue, this did not mean that the people who were formerly enslaved now enjoyed complete autonomy. Instead, soon after taking power, Louverture had issued regulations about labor, which he then consolidated into one decree in October 1800 and continued to expand upon into 1801. As Laurent de Bois wrote in his History of the Haitian Revolution, quote, In seeking to define the colony's future, he, Louverture, found the past weighing inexorably upon it. Saint-Domingue had developed as a producer of sugar and coffee, and it was difficult to imagine any other role for it in the prevailing Atlantic economy. The colony had long depended on the importation of provisions, and in the late 1790s, with the Franco-British War dragging on, foreign trade was more crucial than ever. To attract foreign merchants, Saint-Domingue had to produce and export its traditional commodities. If they were to have a say in their future, the people of Saint-Domingue would need the economic autonomy that could come only from a strong plantation economy, and achieving it would require stifling the aspirations of former slaves who envisioned a future beyond the plantations. Louverture began to impose a military-style discipline on those formerly enslaved, now dubbed cultivators in Saint-Domingue. Cultivators were not free to walk away from the plantations on which they had formerly worked. Leaving without permission would result in, quote, fines or imprisonment. They couldn't move to the towns to work as household servants. The sale of small plots of land of three acres or less was forbidden, so that cultivators couldn't join together to leave the plantation and farm their own plot of land. Female cultivators were forbidden from being in military barracks, as they may use a relationship with the male soldiers in order to escape the plantation. The only path open to cultivators to escape the plantations was to join the army. The economic discipline would be further institutionalized with a new constitution. Toussaint used the occasion of the seventh anniversary of the abolition of slavery by the French National Convention to announce that he was calling together, quote, a constituent assembly that would draft a constitution for Saint-Domingue. By early May, the assembly had completed its work and Toussaint would sign it and put it into effect in July 1801. Louverture taking this initiative was a claim of power from Napoleon, who had begun to put people in place in his colonial ministry who were pro-slavery. The consulate government in Paris had also sent a declaration to Saint-Domingue that the quote-unquote brave blacks of that colony should keep in mind that quote, the French people are the only ones who recognize your right to liberty and equality. However it was intended, it did not come across as reassuring to Toussaint who had already decided that the future of Saint-Domingue should be determined by someone from Saint-Domingue, rather than someone in Paris. The constitution of Saint-Domingue, while further reinforcing the imposed labor system that Toussaint had already put into place and limiting freedom of religion, 
would also declare that Hispaniola, though, quote, part of the French Empire, would also be a place in which, quote, slaves cannot exist, servitude is permanently abolished, all men within it are born, live, and die free and French, no matter their color. The Constitution also declared Toussaint Louverture to be governor of the colony, quote, for the rest of his glorious life, with his hand-picked successor, should he choose to name one, being limited to a five-year term of office. The assembly that had gathered to write the Constitution would remain as a permanent, quote-unquote, consultative body, but the power would really be consolidated in Toussaint himself. We'll have to wait to see the reaction in Paris and Washington to this news, as it's time to head back to the U.S. and get caught up with the president. April found Jefferson back at Monticello, but he returned to Washington by the end of the month. Unlike his first month as president in the nation's capital, this return to the seat of power would be occasioned by reinforcements for the president. First, it was apparently only hours after Jefferson had departed on April 1st that his new private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, arrived at the president's house, having traveled overland from Detroit, where he had previously been stationed. Lewis was described by historian William Seale as follows, quote, The slender, rough-cut Captain Lewis was 27, with a military record that would have done credit to a much older man. Lewis, timid and moody, might have been considered an odd choice for the private secretary post, for he was not at all at home in the drawing room. Social demands on previous presidential secretaries have been heavy, but Lewis performed few of the customary secretarial functions. Seldom does any of the writing in the household accounts even resemble his, and he did not write letters for the president. His more important role was that of the president's pupil, a bright mind being trained. He was treated as a member of the family and pursued his own interest as he pleased. For those of you who listened to episode 3.1, you may notice some parallels to Jefferson's own training under George Wythe back in his early days. Lewis would live at the president's house with the president and, quote, two box-like rooms would be constructed for him, quote, in the south end of the East Room, which was otherwise abandoned to storage. Lewis's residency would be on a more permanent basis, but they would soon be joined by some temporary residents upon Jefferson's return from Virginia. As discussed in episode 3.3, various factors had kept James Madison from the capital city in early 1801. In addition to not wanting to appear too eager for office, Madison had also suffered from ill health and, on February 27th, he had experienced a personal loss as his father passed away. In addition to helping guide Jefferson from afar, Madison had spent March and April 1801 trying to recover his health and settle his father's estate. Jefferson was determined, however, to have his close associate by his side and even stopped overnight at Madison's estate, Montpelier, on April 26th on his return trip to Washington. At the time, though, Madison was still in bed ill. Whether completely recovered or not, the Madisons would set out for the capital shortly thereafter, and Jefferson on the 30th sent a letter to meet them en route, giving them instructions on the conditions of the road ahead and who might be able to help them along the way. He'd be anxiously waiting for them at the president's house with the lights on, for he had already offered for them to stay with him until they could find proper accommodations. Thus, on May 1st, the Madisons arrived in Washington, and the next day, James Madison assumed his post as Secretary of State. A couple of weeks later, another key player in the new administration took his post. Albert Gallatin had traveled back home to western Pennsylvania to make final arrangements to move his family from their estate, Friendship Hill, down to the District of Columbia. 
At the time, the Gallatins had two young children, and Hannah Gallatin was pregnant once more. Though traveling with a pregnant wife and two young kids was difficult and trying for all, the family would manage the transition, and on May 14th, Jefferson made a recess appointment, and Gallatin took his oath of office as the fourth Secretary of the Treasury. The Gallatin family would initially rent a house near the president's house, but as the summer came on, they would move to another rented property near Capitol Hill on the road out of town to Bladensburg, Maryland. With these two key members of his cabinet in place, the president's house would start to come to life with activity, and an unofficial member of his administration would begin to take her place. As the social life of the president's house, in particular that in which ladies were included, had thus far been organized by the president's wife, the widow Jefferson found himself at a disadvantage in that regard. His closest female relations, his daughters Martha and Maria, were both married and tending to families of their own, so they could not take up the burden. Thankfully for Jefferson, Dolly Madison stepped into the void. As soon as Dolly arrived on the scene, Jefferson wrote that she had given him, quote, an opportunity of making some acquaintance with the ladies here. Though Jefferson would likely have preferred for them to remain living with him at the president's house, the Madisons desired their own space. An investor and developer, Thomas Law, had offered up one of the houses he owned on Capitol Hill for them to buy, but the Madisons eventually opted to move into the six buildings at Pennsylvania Avenue and 22nd Street, which was also the temporary headquarters of the State Department. This would put them only four blocks from Jefferson, and Dolly, as the wife of the Secretary of State, and thus by default, the woman of, quote, the highest social rank in Washington, would, in addition to her own hosting duties, assume the role of occasional hostess at the president's house. As James Madison biographer Noah Feldman wrote of her, quote, Dolly's specialty was to downplay, minimize, and if possible, resolve conflict. This trait would align with Jefferson's personality perfectly, as we've already seen him to be one concerned with maintaining a space of peace and harmony. Dolly, however, would not be the only Madison to preserve this space for Jefferson. As we've already seen in the last couple of episodes, the decisions that Jefferson had to make in terms of patronage did not please everyone, and one notable malcontent was a man by the name of James Callender. The Scottish-born newspaper publisher Callender has been slowly but surely popping up more since his first appearance way back in episode 1.33 and his contribution to the anti-federalist effort in the election of 1796. When we last saw Callender in episode 2.22, he was languishing in a cell in Virginia after being arrested under the Sedition Act for his printed attacks against then-President Adams in the 1800 election. The Sedition Act, as stipulated by its own conditions, had expired on March 3, 1801, and thus, when Jefferson took office, he issued pardons for those who he felt had been victims of the Sedition Act, including David Brown, who was discussed in episode 2.17, and James Callender. Despite gaining his freedom, Callender hadn't been reimbursed for paying a $200 fine that had been a part of the judgment against him. Jefferson had, in fact, ordered it to be refunded, but he had little authority to enforce the order. At the time, marshals didn't send the fines on to the federal treasury. Rather, they kept them as a personal compensation. Thus, when Jefferson's order went to the Federalist U.S. Marshal who had collected Callender's fine, the marshal asserted that he would not refund any fines that had been collected while he had been in office. Though the marshal had been replaced, the issue continued to languish, and Callender was desperate for money. 
Thus, on April 27th, Callender wrote to Madison on the pretext of congratulating him on his new post, but in fact, to press him on the issue of securing some financial relief. In the letter, Callender revealed that he felt betrayed by Jefferson in that the president hadn't acted more promptly to help him, asserting that, quote, while I described the treatment which I had received in Richmond and the situation into which my exertions in the cause had brought me, I think the story should have reached the heart of a millstone. He then threatened that, quote, President as he is, he, Jefferson, may trust me if he pleases that I am not the man who is either to be oppressed or plundered with impunity. With that, Callender was confident that the remission of his fine would be attended to promptly and, oh, by the way, he had heard that the postmaster of Richmond was preparing to leave his position. That position just happened to be, quote, one of the few situations which I would think myself qualified to fill, and that it would just about afford a genteel living for an economical family. It cannot be pretended that I am too late in application. That's right, Calendar was going for the full shakedown. Give me my money and a cushy federal job as well. When Madison didn't act quickly enough, Calendar tried another approach. On May 23rd, Virginia Governor James Monroe wrote to Madison that he had met with Calendar twice. The first time he had, quote, appeared so agitated that I requested him to call again, hoping he might be more composed. He returned in the evening in the same temper, so that I thought it best to hear what he had to say, that our communication might be concluded on the subject of the interview. The subject was his money and the slight that he felt at being brushed off by the Jefferson administration. From Monroe's account of the meeting, quote, he, Calendar, shed tears abundantly and seemed disposed to attribute all his disappointments relative to the fine to the executive. Monroe urged caution in dealing with Calendar. Quote, if he is at bottom an honest man, advancing him the money ought to produce a good effect and remove his present irritation. But if he is not, every act of that kind will be attributed to improper motives and perverted hereafter to the injury of the benefactor. The problem with Calendar was that he had been too close to the political circles of the Democratic Republicans in Virginia. As the phrase would go later in history, he knew where all the bodies were buried, or, in Jefferson's case, he knew where they were alive and well at Monticello and being raised by Sally Hemings. Thus, in late May, Madison met with Calendar, and, as Madison reported back to Monroe, he found the newspaper publisher, quote, in the same temper which is described in your letter. He seems implacable towards the principal object of his complaints and not to be satisfied in any respect without an office. It has been my lot to bear the burden of receiving and repelling his claims. What feelings may have been excited by my plain dealing with him, I cannot say, but am inclined to think he has been brought by it to some reflections which will be useful to him. It is impossible, however, to reason concerning a man whose imagination and passions have been so fermented. The reason for Callender's urgency, Madison discovered, was a woman who the Secretary of State presumed, quote, to be young, beautiful in his eyes at least, and in a sphere above him. Getting his financial house in order would enable Callender to marry and start a family. Madison, however, did not have any immediate relief to provide, and thus, According to Callender's later description of the encounter, Callender walked away feeling that Madison, quote, seemed to think that he had become a sort of semi-divinity, 
and that poor calendar was not worthy to become his footstool. As many a man has done when faced with the dissolution of his dreams and financial ruin, Calendar proceeded, quote, to Rhodes Hotel in Washington and got loudly and publicly drunk. There would be more back and forth between Calendar and the Jefferson administration, and Treasury Secretary Gallatin would get involved, ultimately forcing the former U.S. Marshal to pay the $200 back. But before he did so, Madison, in another meeting, would put Calendar off when pressed about the postmaster position in Richmond, and Jefferson would offend Calendar, quote, by offering him $50 to go away. This won't be the last we hear of Calendar, dear listeners. But let's leave this situation for now and return back to Jefferson's domestic arrangements. The Madisons opting for other lodgings would leave a void at the president's house, as Jefferson would note in a letter to his daughter Martha, in which he asserted that, since the departure of the Secretary of State and his family, quote, Captain Lewis and myself are like two mice in a church. He urged Martha and Maria to join him in Washington, but for the time being, the widower and the bachelor would abide at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in the large, quiet building. Little could they have known that, over 4,800 miles away, news was coming from North Africa, which would disrupt the tranquility. On October 22, 1800, Tripolitan Bashaw Yusuf Karamondli had issued a threat that, were his demands for more tribute from the United States to the tune of a one-time cash gift of $225,000 and $25,000 in annual tribute moving forward not met, he would in six months declare war and issue orders for American ships in the Mediterranean to be attacked and plundered. As always, news was slow to arrive in Washington, but on March 13th, Jefferson received the first dispatches from the Mediterranean on the Tripolitan threat and, looking at his calendar, realized that American shipping would soon be sailing into a naval war zone if Tripoli hadn't already declared war. We'll discuss the reaction by the Jefferson administration to these developments, along with other matters, next time in an episode I'd like to call To Limited Arms. Until then, thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks as well to Chris Flynn of the Number 10 Podcast, who I consulted to verify some of the details on the state of British and Irish politics in 1801. You can find a link to his podcast on the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. On the site, you can also find episode guides for our series on the presidencies of the first three presidents, as well as links to the many ways to listen to the episode and information on how you yes, you, can support the podcast. Should you have any questions or comments, I can be reached by numerous means. I'm available via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect on social media. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. However you choose to connect, I welcome the interaction and can't thank you enough for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, 
We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.